Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Mike. Hey folks, Mike Cisneros here, one of the data storytellers on the team here at Storytelling with Data. My colleagues and I spend a lot of our time preparing for and delivering workshops to people all around the world. They all want to learn how to communicate more effectively with their data. And we get the rare opportunity to meet these people, thousands of people every year across a huge variety of industries, companies, roles, and everybody that we talk to is in a unique place on their own personal journey towards strengthening their communication skills. And what this means is that we never quite know what kind of questions we're going to be asked during or after a session. Now, some questions we get relatively frequently. For instance, do you need special software or plugins to make the kinds of graphs you're showing us? Or is there a right and a wrong chart choice for every situation? Or can you just make our next presentation deck for us? These questions, by the way, all have the same one word answer. But beyond the questions we get frequently, we also hear questions that are a little less frequent. But even though we don't hear them as much, they are important to discuss. And when questions come up in a workshop that we don't hear very often, I think it's a great moment for the people who are in attendance that day. It sparks a conversation that otherwise might never have come to pass. And it gives everybody there in the session something to think about that they might not have ever considered otherwise. Now, I love when this happens because it shows that people are not only thinking deeply about communication and how it relates to their own specific situations, but they're also likely going to take what we talk about and apply it because the question is likely about something that was specific to their particular situation. And because of this, they're going to take committed steps to improve their presentations going forward. Now, my fellow storytellers and I thought that it was worth capturing and sharing some of these questions and answers more broadly. It's great that the people in the sessions get to hear them, but we wanted more folks to have a chance to hear the sorts of things that we talk about. That's why today's episode is all about the questions you asked or that you might have asked if you had been a part of one of those day's workshops. Let's start with a question about multidimensional data. When we have three or more dimensions to show, how do you recommend we do it? I worry that my audience might not be able to make sense of it all. Now, this is a great question. As analysts and All of us on the Storytelling with Data team have been analysts in our careers. We're often asked to consider multiple dimensions at once and investigate complex relationships among these different variables. And when we're doing this, we're probably using visual analyses to explore, to find patterns and outliers. And the graph types that we, as trained analysts, use to do this tend to be 
a little more complicated and maybe less intuitive than a simple bar chart or a line chart. They make sense to us because we are familiar with the chart type and with the data that we're looking at. But to an unfamiliar audience, they're probably going to be at best confusing and at worst impenetrable. So rather than use our exploratory visuals to communicate multidimensional findings, let me offer a few different options here. The first one is an option. It's not my favorite, but you could go with it, and that is the bubble chart. A bubble chart is kind of a bulked up version of a scatter plot, and they're probably most strongly associated with the late Hans Rosling, who used them to great effect in videos for the BBC and for a couple of different TED Talks. You can find his work by searching on YouTube for it or looking at Gapminder, which is the institute that he founded and worked for throughout his life. And we'll put links to these in the notes for the show as well. Bubble charts place data points on an X and a Y axis, and then add some more additional characteristics like color or size or marker type, maybe even motion to encode even more dimensions. The main drawback of bubble charts is their complexity. These charts ask a reader to keep track of a lot of variables for each data point at the same time. And for any reader or viewer who's unfamiliar with your data, it's going to be pretty hard work for them to draw any specific insights out of the visual right away. At the very least, they're going to have to do a lot of looking at it, scratching their head, trying to figure out what the encoding actually is. Sometimes it's a little like poetry where you're putting a lot of meaning and information into as few uh, words or as few things on the screen or on the page as possible. You can get a lot out of it, but it requires that the viewer put a lot into it as well. And since this is going to be so much work, you're running the risk that your audience might opt out of doing this work altogether and just move on to doing something else. So instead of piling a lot of dimensions into one single chart, you could consider another option, maybe a panel chart, which is also known sometimes as a trellis chart or a small multiple chart. Now, these can be used to break down multivariate data sets and show pairwise comparisons across any two dimensions. Let me give you an example uh, so that you can visualize this uh, while we're talking about it. Imagine that we are measuring a bunch of different people by a few dimensions, height, weight, age, and I don't know, shoe size, let's say. Four things that we can measure. Now, some of our subjects live in cities, some of them live in suburbs, and some of them live in the country. And we want to see if there's any relationship across these four measurements and across the attribute of where these folks um, call their home. So to make a small multiple graph based on this information, we might create a grid of 16 charts. So four charts wide, four charts tall. For the first row of our charts, the vertical axis will show the subject's height. For the second row, the vertical axis will show a subject's weight. For the third row, the vertical axis will be age. And for the fourth row, the vertical axis will be shoe size. Then across our four columns from left to right, we'll do the same thing with our 
horizontal axis, our x-axis. In the first column of graphs, those graphs will all show height on our x-axis. The next column will show weight on the x-axis, and so on. So within each graph, we're going to put a point for each one of the people that we've measured, and we're going to use a color to show whether that person lives in the city, the suburbs, or the country. So if you've followed this description, or if I've described it well enough, what you're imagining is 16 individual charts. Each one of them is comparing two of the four variables or the four measurements that we have taken for each person. We can see by looking at each one of these charts if there's a correlation between those two variables, or in addition, if there are any uh, bits of clustering going on that might have to do with where people live. We're still asking our audience to do some work, although it might be a little bit easier to see the information in this format than it would have been in the bubble chart. Maybe the best approach to showing three or more dimensions at once would be try not to do so. At least don't do so without providing a lot of context and guidance to your viewers. So rather than trying to find one magic graph or one collection of graphs that will do all of the heavy lifting, instead consider using techniques like animation or showing multiple graphs in a sequence to highlight some specific takeaways one at a time. We might need multi-dimensional graphs to explore our data, but in presenting our findings, we can choose simpler graphs that make these findings unmistakable. And when you do that, when you choose simpler graphs and reveal them one by one, or you build this complicated graph piece by piece as you narrate through each element for your audience, you can take your readers, you can take your viewers on a journey of understanding, building their knowledge piece by piece, taking them ultimately to a sophisticated but full understanding at the end of the process. That sophisticated investigation that you have done with this complicated outcome is much more likely to be understood at the end of the day if your audience can take it in gradually via simpler visualizations than they would be if we asked them to grasp the entire multidimensional analysis all at once. Our next question is not about graph type, but more about graph layout. I was always taught that you should center align and capitalize the first letters of words and titles. I've noticed storytelling with data's charts only capitalize the first word in the chart title. You use all caps for the axis titles and you don't center align anything. What's the reason for that? Now that is a great question. Now there are good reasons why many tools use title case and center aligned text as the defaults for headers and for titles. These formatting choices, generally speaking, help that text stand out from everything else around it. Most written text in the West, for instance, is left-aligned because left-aligned text is easiest to read. So when you want something to stand out from that, like a title or a section header, it makes sense that you would maybe align it differently. Center-aligned text in that situation will grab a reader's attention because of the contrast with the other text on the page. Similarly, capitalizing every word in a phrase helps to set it off from the surrounding text and makes it seem a little bit more formal and important. But in graphs for business communications, the title shouldn't be the element that stands out the most. 
It's going to provide important context for the viewer, of course, but the data and the insights should be the stars of the show. So with some slight tweaks to the default settings that our tools often have can make our title a stronger supporting player without stealing focus from the key elements of a communication. Now, as we mentioned, center-aligned text helps a reader to see that a new chapter or a section or a page of text is about to begin, but a graph is already pretty easily distinguishable from any nearby text. We don't need center-aligned titles to overemphasize that distinction. Instead, if we left-align our chart titles, we can use that alignment to create a visual frame around our graph without requiring us to draw any additional lines like borders around a chart. Putting the title in the top left of our graph space also ensures that a viewer is more likely to see that important context first and make it easier to find at a glance. Now let's talk about sentence case versus title case in terms of clarity and speed of comprehension. The big thing that title case does is set text apart from the surrounding words. And in our graph, since our title is on its own, not near other words, it doesn't need that kind of assistance in separating it out from the things around it. Sentence case, where you're only capitalizing the first word of the title, has many advantages when it comes to understanding. It's easier and faster to read than title case. In any long block of text, you don't wanna have every single word capitalized. It looks weird and wrong and really slows you down when you're trying to read it. Sentence case also feels a little less formal, a little more approachable than title case does. And that can be really beneficial in those situations where your audience is unfamiliar with the data that you're presenting or when they're unfamiliar with data in general, you wanna make yourself or make your graphs feel a little more welcoming. Another thing to keep in mind when you use title case, where every word is capitalized, proper nouns are a lot harder to pick out. And if you have proper nouns in your chart title, then using sentence case will make them stand out a lot more easily. Now, we talked so far only about the titles of our graphs, but the titles of our axes are where we actually use something different, which is we use all caps. The axis titles are providing important information to any viewer of a graph. But the thing is, they shouldn't be distracting. They should be easily discoverable, but at the same time, they should be able to fade into the background. And it might seem counterintuitive that using all caps will make them fade into the background, but stay with me here because you'll see why in just a second. There's several ways that we can achieve this balance of easy to find, but also easy to ignore in our access titles. One thing is pretty simple is we set the text to a neutral but readable gray color. So it's not calling attention through being bold or popping in terms of the color that we're using. But this is why we're using all caps. When you think about a block of text, a block of a couple words really where the text is all caps, the outline around those words is a more regular shape. It's usually a rectangle rather than a jagged mix of uh, ascenders and descenders, which is the technical word for the parts of the lowercase letters that stick up above 
the line of text or that drop below the baseline of the font. That can make it easier when you're using all caps for that regular rectangle. You sort of unfocus your eyes a little bit and that text will fade into the background more easily. Also, when we align our axis titles to the top of the Y axis or all the way to the left of the X axis, they can always then be found more easily than if they're floating in the center of the axis, which for whatever reason is where most of our tools tend to put them by default. When we do that, it's just like when we put our title to the left-hand side of the graph, the axis titles in these locations are actually creating implicit borders around our graph rather than forcing us to draw actual borders around our graph. Now, I think we should keep in mind here that these choices are not right or wrong. They're just reflective of the styles that uh, me and my fellow data storytellers here at Storytelling with Data have been uh, following as we have created graphs over the last several years. It's a matter of preference and the priorities that we have when we are creating visuals for our specific audiences. In business, it is important to maximize understanding and clarity in our charts, and these choices are all about accomplishing that most effectively. If your organization has an established style guide already, or if they follow existing guidelines like AP Style or Chicago Manual of Style, what have you, then you should stick with those conventions. Otherwise, consider the impression that you want to make on your audience and make your own capitalization and alignment choices accordingly. Our third question today is about the level of detail we include in our communications. How do I know how much detail to include in my slides? I want to make sure the context of the communication is clear, but I don't want my visuals to feel cluttered or have so much explanation that my audience thinks I'm talking down to them. Our workshops emphasize the importance of simplifying our communications without oversimplifying them. Visually, we want to get rid of anything that gets in the way of understanding, and that means removing unnecessary lines, removing significant digits that aren't actually that significant, data labels that don't necessarily need to be there, and so on. But we also need to be careful that we don't remove so much information that we leave our audiences guessing about what they're even viewing. How much context then is it necessary for us to include so that we have an understandable but uncluttered visual on one hand, presented with enough background information for the viewer to grasp its meaning with the key insights and the recommended actions emphasized? We have addressed a question like this in the past, and when we've done so, we've relied on the always true, if sometimes unsatisfactory response of, it depends. Every situation is unique. There's no checklist, there's no scorecard you can use in every circumstance to ensure that you've hit the perfect amount of detail. However, there are a couple of considerations that will help you zero in on just the right amount of context to provide in your particular communication. Those are the method of delivery you'll be using and the relationship you have with your audience. When you're presenting something live or when you're presenting something in real time in a virtual setting, you have tremendous flexibility. You can respond to audience cues and questions. You can add or skip over details. 
You can add or skip over background information on the fly, all based on the reactions you're getting. And you can prepare more slides. In fact, you should maybe prepare more slides to visually support your step-by-step explanations and keep viewers' attention, particularly in an online communication. You can get away with having less context and detail physically written down or actually shown on the screen because you are there live and in person to fill in any blanks. This is not the case in written communication. In a written communication where you aren't there to narrate it, the level of explicit detail that you include must be higher. Without you present to facilitate the flow of information, your words and your visuals must paint the full picture and address at least the first order questions you anticipate getting all on their own. In addition, people have a higher tolerance for detail on a slide or on a single page of a report if they can consume it privately at their own pace. In a live group setting, they will not have that level of tolerance for detail because they will feel pressured to listen and to read and to consume things all at the same time. And because of this, the level of detail that is necessary for a written communication is much higher than for a presentation. Now, we have an exercise online, which you can find in the Storytelling with Data community, called Optimize Your Output. We'll put the link to it in the show notes. But this exercise will help you to see what the differences might look like when you start from the same data, but optimize your output for a written presentation versus a live experience. Let's talk about our relationship with our audiences. Even when we take care to identify our intended audience, as we always should whenever we communicate with data, we should also think specifically about how they are going to perceive us or how we expect them to perceive us. Maybe we've worked with a certain group before, or maybe we've worked with their mutual acquaintances. And as a result, we might begin the presentation having already established our bona fides. If you have an established, trusting relationship with your audience, then you can get away with showing a lot less detail without your audience even questioning it. On the other hand, we might find ourselves to be a completely unknown quantity to our audience. Or we might have had to deliver unwelcome news in prior presentations to that same group. If you haven't established a basis of trust with your audience, or if they harbor some kind of negativity from prior communications, then you may need to show detail more explicitly. That way, your audience is less likely to feel that you're trying to mislead them by only showing the parts that back up your story and selectively discarding any of the rest of the information. You can test out different structures and levels of detail in your presentation early on in the creative process by implying a decidedly low-tech but incredibly effective technique known as storyboarding. I storyboard with almost everything that I create nowadays. I highly recommend it. If you don't storyboard on a regular basis but would like to see how it can be put into action, I'm going to once again refer you to our online community where the exercise Storyboard Your Project can give you some guidelines for getting started. 
Let's do one final question today before everybody gets bored of my voice. In fact, this question is all about being bored. In my role supporting our corporate leaders, I often need to build one presentation and then deliver it over and over again as I bring it to multiple local and regional offices. How do I keep myself from getting bored when I have to tell essentially the same story five, 10, or 20 times in a row? Anyone who's had to share the same communication multiple times is going to identify with this struggle. For a presentation to be effective and compelling, we as storytellers have to be engaged with it. And it is just natural to find that to be an easier task when the story is fresh to us versus when we've already delivered it dozens of times. There are a few techniques to use that we have found to have been effective in keeping us present, focused, and compelling to an audience, even when telling a story that we've told many times before. First, remember that since every audience is unique, every presentation will be unique as well. If you're delivering a communication to a dozen different local or regional offices, each one of those offices is going to have a different set of local competitors, a different set of circumstances, a unique composition of team members. And because of this, even if 80 or 90% of your presentation is the same every time, there's still going to be that rest of it, that 10 to 20% that is distinctly and specifically relevant for that particular audience. Ideally, you're going to have a few slides at least in every presentation that are customized for that day's session. And that custom content, both building it and delivering it, will keep you engaged as you prepare the presentation, as you actually bring that presentation out on the road, and it will help to make the overall story a lot more meaningful to your audience as you deliver it. But even if the slide deck, for whatever reason, stayed exactly the same, it's unlikely, if not impossible, that any two presentations would ever be exactly the same. Because how the content is framed, what parts of the story are more meaningful, the nature, the volume of the questions your audience is going to have, the level of detail you share, all of these are dependent on the situation, on the specific group with which you'll be speaking. And you, being the presenter, are going to stay present. You're going to stay attuned to what your audience is telling you, both verbally and non-verbally, while you're presenting. And that very thing will keep you from going on autopilot. Another critical thing to remember is that you might have delivered this same message a hundred times before to a hundred different audiences, but for the people in front of you, it is their first time hearing the presentation. Think of stage actors. They might be called on to do nine shows a week for months on end, but they can't just phone it in and not give their best every time because their job is to provide a great experience for the theater goers in the crowd who are only ever going to see one performance. If anything, your past experience of giving a similar presentation is going to make you even more prepared to adjust to your audience's specific needs, specific interests, all on the fly. The way that you have a command of your prepared material 
due to all of these different times that you've given it, this is going to make you even more confident and capable of handling whatever questions your audience that day might have. And by the 20th presentation or by the 50th or the 100th, it's likely that you'll have heard and answered a lot of the common inquiries before. And you're going to have a lot more headspace and enthusiasm to handle the unusual or challenging ones. Finally, a word of warning here. Resist the temptation to make changes just to keep yourself entertained. Your slides, I promise you, don't need new graphics. They don't need a new template. They don't need different graphs just because you are tired of looking at them over and over again. Look, revising your work certainly justifiable in some cases. In fact, iterating is almost always advisable as you're building your presentation for the first time. And as you see over time that maybe certain sections of this presentation aren't resonating well with most audiences, and you think you have a way that you can improve them, absolutely. You'd be remiss not to make changes at that point in time. But making modifications to your presentation just for the sake of making changes is ill-advised. I found that when I would go down that path, it would rarely make the communication better. At best, it would just make it different uh, at the cost of a lot more effort on my part. Usually, when I found myself doing this, it would be a warning sign that I was losing sight of what was important, which is the focus on the audience. Instead, I had started to focus on keeping myself entertained. And that is a clear case of misplaced priorities whenever we start to value our own amusement over the audience's engagement. Refocus on the audience, and that will keep you engaged even when you've given that same presentation what feels like a dozen, two dozen, five dozen times before. Those four questions all came from attendees of our recent workshops. And the next question could very well come from you because our next virtual public workshops will be held in the first two weeks of May, which are right around the corner. On May 4th and 5th, that's a Wednesday and a Thursday, we'll be holding our foundational Let's Learn Storytelling with Data workshop. That's a single workshop taught across two two-hour sessions from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Time both days. This is the workshop where we teach the fundamentals of effective visualization. You'll learn to understand the context, choose an effective visual, identify and eliminate clutter, focus attention, and ultimately tell a complete story. For folks who might want to take a deeper dive into some more advanced topics, we'll also be offering in May, for the very first time to the public, our Let's Practice Craft the Narrative workshop. In this highly interactive hands-on session, you'll learn to craft a compelling narrative through guided facilitation. Come to the workshop with a project of your own and leave with a solid plan for what you want to communicate, how you'll do it plus an approach to replicate in future communications. You'll get and give personalized feedback throughout the session through carefully constructed individual exercises and interactive activities. This advanced workshop, the Let's Practice Craft the Narrative workshop, will be on May 11th and 12th. Also a Wednesday and a Thursday, a single workshop conducted across two two-hour sessions beginning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time each day. Podcast listeners will get a 10% discount on either or both workshops. Go to storytellingwithdata.com slash public hyphen workshops to register. Again, we'll have the link in the episode notes. 
and be sure to enter the code PODCAST10, that's PODCAST10 at checkout, to get your 10% discount. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Storytelling with Data podcast. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe or tell a friend. If you're more of a visual person, you can also follow us on the Storytelling with Data YouTube channel. We've got visualization makeovers there, tutorials, and lots of what you love from the Storytelling with Data team. Follow us on all the socials, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, to keep up with the latest content. You can read our blog at storytellingwithdata.com or join our online community at community.storytellingwithdata.com to practice and sharpen your data communication skills. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.